This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Groback. And this week, we are reading a Poirot short story, The Le Miserier Inheritance. Exciting. Very exciting, and just a a tiny bit of background as to why we chose this short story before we jump in, because we are purposely haphazard, if that is not too much of an oxymoron to use, with the short stories that we choose. We kind of go where the wind takes us in these interstitial episodes, and when we were speaking... Well, we didn't, we didn't for a long time, but once we made it through Poirot Investigates, now we're just using it as a free-for-all. But you could even argue, though, that Poirot Investigates was a little haphazard since there were earlier Poirots. If we were going to go in chronological order with the Poirot short stories... We have not, so we... We acknowledge that, and we've, we've embraced the uh, sporadic nature of our short story coverage. But in a previous episode with our good friend Mark Aldridge for the film adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express, he mentioned that this particular short story is the only one that was not adapted for the Suchet ITV series. And we were not aware of that, and that was very we interesting not. to us. I will say, and this is to be perfectly fair to Mr. Suchet himself, I looked it up in his book that he wrote about the series, and he does admit in the book, he mentions the Le Miserier inheritance and says that there was only one tiny short story, this being that one, that they did not adapt for the series. Unless I'm mistaken, I believe that uh, Mr. Suchet recorded an audio version of this short story, so in fact, he actually kind of has covered Oh, like he did that on his own outside of the ITV series? I think so. I totally believe that, and I plan on listening to that. That's in keeping with with his fastidiousness, his Poirovian fastidiousness um, (laughs) that he has embraced. And to be even fairer to the series, I did a little even further research, and there is a character whose last name is Le Miserier in the Labors of Hercules episode that they did. It makes sense, too, that they added that last name in the Labors of Hercules episode, because that's the one that is kind of a pastiche of a whole bunch of short stories as one. So that's a little bit the, like, catch-all episode. We did not watch that episode to discuss along with this podcast episode, because it really, other than that last name... Well, and it is a short story collection, so... Exactly. So when we get to it, we can. that's when we can watch that episode. So it just didn't make sense to watch that adaptation while we were discussing the short story, but discuss it we shall. And Catherine Brobeck, why don't you start us off by telling us when it was published? It was first published in guess what publication? Was it perhaps? The it may well have been. And it was, so it was published on December 18th, 1923. So super early short story. Indeed. So on to the victim. Well, there are a number of victims, really. Um, (laughs) One could argue that the victims here are the firstborn male heirs to the Le Miserier inheritance 
all of whom have apparently died before inheriting. So right. this goes all the way back, you know, pre-Reformation, supposedly. By which I assume, and also given that Le Missourier itself is a rather French-sounding name, that this is a Roman Catholic family? One would assume so. Yeah. And especially because of, we'll get to it in a moment, but let's just say uh, joining a monastery does become part of this story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of victims. Um, let's talk about our suspects. Well, specifically though, maybe we should talk about our main we have potential a lot of pa- victim here. Right, we have a lot of past victims, and then we have a would-be present day victim. Indeed, and that is actually the impetus for bringing in Poirot, because the victim who could be is young Ronald Lamazurier, um, who's had three near-death brushes very recently, and so his mother is the one who comes to Poirot asking for help. He's really young, which is, I, I think, important for how horrifying this story actually is. Ronald Lamazurier is eight. He also has a younger brother, Gerald, who is six, but given that Ronald is the eldest son, he's the one who is in danger of suffering from this family curse. Yeah, so his mother comes because she's worried for poor Ronnie and comes to Poirot for his help, and Poirot investigates as he does, so let's talk about the suspects in this case. We've got a bunch of Le Missouriers, shockingly. (laughs) Indeed. So first (laughs) off is, uh, and most suspiciously, I suppose, Mm. is Roger Le Missourier, who's young Ronald's cousin, although he's an adult man, and he would be third in line to the estate, I believe. After Ronald and Gerald. Mm -hmm. If their father If their father died, died, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he routinely plays with the boys. He's like their beloved older cousin, and he's like a roughhouser, and he kind of prompts them to do daredevilly acts, including, most importantly, that he encourages both of the boys to climb the walls of the estate up the ivy trellises. Yeah, and that's one of the near brushes uh, with death, with death that uh, Ronnie's mother is worried about. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Then we have the boy's father, Hugo Le Missourier. He, of course, is the current head of the family, the patriarch. And he himself was the youngest of five brothers. Mm-hmm. Again, the eldest son in the Le Missourier clan has never inherited. So he is the youngest of these five brothers, all of whom met tragic ends before he landed the estate. And then we have, I suppose, Mrs. Le Missourier, who is the one who goes to Poirot. But she's an Sadie. American. Sadie, Sadie. Missouri, eh? mm-hmm. And she's an American, and she does not believe in curses. She thought it was really amusing until all of a sudden it seemed like they were coming true. And even though she still doesn't believe in it, she does believe that her son is in danger. And also she feels like her husband absolutely won't listen to her because he's such a fatalist about the family curse. He basically just assumes their son is going to die. Right, like this is the way it has to be because this is the way it has been for generations, and she just she just doesn't understand because she's she's an American who just doesn't doesn't get that this is the way the world works. Apparently so. Um, she thinks Apparently it's an amusing so. thing for other families in different countries, basically, not right. something that she abides by. Right. By the uh, way, I'm getting the <laughs> feeling that even beyond stereotypical American dialogue, Agatha Christie loves a stereotypical American name. Are there any Americans who are ever named Jane and John? I feel like they're always Eurydice and Absalom and Sadie and these really biting, caustic sort of names. Maybe so. I really haven't thought about that. 
Our last suspect is John Gardner. And this is a suspiciously good-looking man, hearkening back a little bit to Lord Edgeware <laughs> dies. More, more of that that suspicious beauty in a man. Hastings really doesn't like it. Although in yeah. this case, Poirot's with him. Right. Yeah. They they both are like, mm, I don't like him. He's too good-looking. I just don't trust those good looks. Those wavy curls. auburn curls. <laughs> yeah, auburn curls. <laughs> <laughs> He is um, he is the secretary to Hugo Le Missouri. Yeah. So, Kemper, the world as it appears to be. Yes. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> and this short story is, as you can tell, narrated by Captain Hastings. Woohoo! That makes me happy. Poirot and Hastings were dining at the Carlton with a brass hat, which is a kind of soldier. Uh, I think that it's military brass. He's, he's like a, a higher up in the British military. Got it. So they're dining with his brass hat, and he's thanking Poirot for his service to the war office during the Great War, obviously, at this point. And suddenly mm-hmm. the brass hat has to leave. And they are joined by a young Captain Vincent Le Miserier, who Hastings knew from France in the war. And he is the current heir to this notorious Le Miserier family. He is also with his somewhat awkward professor uncle, Hugo Le Miserier. He's a, he's a, he's a chemist. Yes, Hugo is a chemist. But, he, right, but so. he's, he's professorial, though. He's supposed to be hunched over books all the time. That's how Hastings describes him. But his, his metier is chemistry. Right. That information is kind of slipped in in the, in the early paragraphs here. Could it be important? Potentially. Mm. <laughs> and that, of course, is the Hugo who is becomes the father of the boys that we'll, we will get to know later in the story. But awkwardly shoulder-slumped Uncle Hugo is there. And then his cousin, Roger Le Miserier, shows up at the restaurant to alert them to the fact that Vincent's father has taken a serious fall from a horse and is dying. So that means that Vincent Le Miserier would be the one to inherit should the father die. Vincent and Hugo end up rushing out, but Roger lingers, and that's when he explains the whole Le Miserier curse to Poirot and Hastings. And it's actually really kind of funny because he's like, oh, I'm just going to meet them at King's Cross. It's fine. Like, I totally have, like, a little bit of time to explain this long-winded story to you, random two men that I've never right. met before. Right. I'll jaw with you for a couple <laughs> of paragraphs. Why not? Um, so, basically, the story that Roger tells them is that a pre-Reformation ancestor of the family went nuts, for lack of a better word, um, after mm-hmm. he believed that his wife had had an affair and that his son was not, in fact, his son. So, he disowns the son, and then... In case that wasn't good enough, he sealed both his wife and the son alive into a wall. A little cask of Amontillado style uh, <laughs> indeed, you know, indeed. execution there. Yep. But this is not before the wife has cursed him and said that, you know, no firstborn son of the family would ever inherit the state for what he had done because she was innocent and that was his son. And, yeah, she's eventually proven to be very much innocent, except that was, unfortunately, after she was sealed in the wall. And presumably starved to death. Indeed. With her son. Yeah. And so the family's cursed, and the patriarch— That that dude wore a hair shirt, though. He did. So he um, basically goes even more nuts, although that's saying something, and he just basically locks himself in a monastery wearing a hair shirt as a, I guess, repentant monk. 
And so this curse, I guess she meant it because the family has kept running into it ever since. Right. And as it turns out, Vincent LeMessurier in this present day is not immune to the curse because as he rushes north on the train to make it to his dying father, he apparently steps out of that moving train and dies. It's uh, it's a, some sort of a grief-stricken mishap, Indeed. you know, an, an, an accidental death. So the estate passes to everybody follow along with this. The estate mm-hmm. passes to another brother, Ronald, but this is not child Ronald. This is grown man right. Ronald. He lost his only son um, at the Battle of the Somme. So he dies, but, you know, he had already been kind of like an invalid. So then right. the estate goes to brother John, who seemed fine, and he had a son at Eaton. And then the son at Eaton dies on a holiday in a shooting mishap. And then right after that, Brother John dies from a wasp sting. Right. So basically we have all of these brothers and their sons dying. A whole bunch of them. And the estate is now in the hands of brother number five, who is Professor Hugo, the chemist. And he then subsequently has two sons, the aforementioned Roger and Gerald. And Ronald, now Hugo. Ronald Rogers, the cousin. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. The aforementioned <laughs> conveniently Ronald all and of the, Conveniently, there are two Ronalds and a Roger in this story, so not yeah, making seriously. it easy. <laughs> so Hugo now is also seemingly dying, and this is the point at which we enter the story when Poirot goes down to investigate because it seems that this eldest eight-year-old son is under threat. So, the world as it actually is. The curse is real! Superstition (laughs) rules the day. Ghosts, ghosts! Um, (laughs) No, the answer, of course. Should I clip ghost again? Please never do again. (laughs) They go to investigate, and Poirot very readily agrees to this case, too. He's just on top of it. Well, he agrees to it readily once he gets the information from Mrs. LeMessurier that the ivy on the trellis had actually been cut. So okay, that, so this is so this is clue number one. Yes. Mrs. Lemazurier knows that someone snipped the trellis that the kids were playing on because right. of the, the so there are three accidents, right? There's a near drowning because he swam out way too far into the ocean. Eight year old Ronald. <laughs> Indeed. Right. There's mm-hmm. a Christie a Christie favorite Tommy poisoning. And <laughs> enter the bulging can. <laughs> Indeed. Then there's the trellis incident, but it's really only of the three, the trellis one, that has made her go visit Poirot. And so, right. you know, the deduction here is like, of course she's right. And also probably the other two incidents weren't accidents either, except, and this is the big except, both of the sons were targeted in the Tomain incident, but not in all three of them. Right. Obviously, in the drowning incident, it was just Ronald who almost drowned, but they were both seemingly poisoned or had bad reactions to food. But then the trellis incident, Gerald, for whatever reason, wasn't around, right? right? So it was only Ronald who was targeted in that one. And that, yeah, and that's the one that convinces Poirot as well that this isn't just an overprotective mother imagining things because if someone actually cut the vine, then something's going on here, and, then, and that boy is actually in danger. So right. Poirot travels down to save the day, as he always does. The other thing, since we're talking about that, that clue of the trellis, we mentioned that one of the suspects is Roger 
Lemissurier, who is the third in line after the two boys. The curious thing about cutting the trellis, though, when Gerald, the younger brother, wasn't around, is that it kind of knocks out Roger from contention because that doesn't really help Roger since if Ronald dies, then Gerald becomes the next in line. I mean, I guess you could, and I think Hastings even suggests this, well, maybe he was just (laughs) killing Ronald and then he was going (laughs) to kill Gerald later. So I guess it doesn't completely knock him out of contention, but it certainly knocks him down a peg or two in terms of the suspect list. Right. And so if that's the case, um, and we know it's not going to be a superstition incident, the question becomes who other than Roger possibly has a motive. And all right. So the resolution here gets real weird. So it starts because while Poirot and Hastings are at the estate, they hear that um, Ronald has gone to a nearby house for a picnic uh, where they keep a lot of bees. And Poirot gets nearly frantic about this. And Hastings is a little bit like, this seems quite an overreaction. Right, like he doesn't realize that there are bees at this estate that they're visiting until they're already gone, right? And already correct. at the estate. And he's like, bees? Oh, mon dieu. Right, correct. And so then... right when, <laughs> Right when <laughs> Farrow is freaking out about it, the family comes back to the house. And in fact, guess what? Ronald has been stung by a bee. But, you know, he's a brave little boy. It didn't hurt that much. And... All and of let's this. actually, because this is, I mean, this is so, this is very typical of Christy in the clever way that she gives us this information, because the way that the boy tells Poirot about the sting is very telling, and it's it a is. sort of sequence of events that she's used a lot. I remember in the House of Astarte, it was a similar um, mm-hmm. sort of sleight of hand in terms of the way that the information was conveyed. Here is what he says... Let me see, my little man, said Poirot. Where was it? Here, on the side of my neck, said Ronald importantly. But it doesn't hurt. Father said, keep still. There's a bee on you. And I kept still. And he took it off. But it stung me first, though it didn't really hurt, only like a pin. And I didn't cry because I'm so big and going to school next year. So we know from that that he didn't actually feel the sting until his father put his hands on him and said, oh, let me get that bee for you. And then he felt the sting. So indeed, and what happened? Well, guess what? Faro figures it out from this, and uh, he doesn't tell Hastings because, of course, he doesn't. Because he doesn't tell Hastings anything. Right. So instead, he makes Hastings hide in the dark (laughs) in a small child's room while the child is basically drugged asleep. Yeah. It's a little creepy. A little creepy. Really creepy. And but it so gets creepier. Lur- yep, because um, all of a sudden a figure sneaks into the room and pulls out a hypodermic uh, needle. It's a little hypo. T- mm-hmm. Yeah, to stab the kid in the neck. And so Hastings and Poirot jump out of their hiding spot, tackle this mystery intruder, knock him down, and then Hastings turns back on the lamp. And of course, and, and by the way, he's convinced that it is, of course, the secretary who he still distrusts for his good because looks. Because he's too pretty. Yep. Yes, indeed. So, of course, it's not the secretary. It is... Hugo. It's the dad. It is Ronald's father. Trying to murder his own son. To basically, so, like, keep the family curse intact. Well, because this is really where the story goes off the rails, <laughs> if it hadn't before. <laughs> Because uh, it turns out Hugo's insane, uh, mm-hmm. like lit- lit- literally insane, suffering from madness. 
I don't think the story necessarily goes off the rails. I think it's just a story about madness, and that, of course, is the wordplay in the title, right? The Le Miserie inheritance, yeah, the true inheritance, madness. is madness. Yeah, it's not the estate. It's not of the course. Estate. So, you know, it's a charming little tale of madness inherited through the ages. It's really interesting, and at this point, a story written in 1923 is certainly period. There's such a belief in inheritance, in inherited traits, and in blood will tell, and just the idea that you kind of are very much based upon your forebears in terms of your personality and who you are, and that it is not something that we tend to subscribe to in modern days. We are much more on the nurture side of things. At least I I feel like I am. That Um, It it feels quaint. It feels a little quaint to me, this idea of inherited madness, but I think that it it feels Or it feels very dangerous. I mean, that's a very dangerous (laughs) thing to think. Yeah. It's unusual, because even though we see hints of this, and sometimes explicitly elsewhere in Christie, Mm -hmm. this is so explicit that it feels off-kilter. I think reading it. And also, I mean, it doesn't help that the structure of the story is really odd. It's um, broken up into all of these sections. One of the sections is literally one paragraph long. Yeah. It's like a 10 so page story with seven sections, I think. Yeah. And so it's, it's structurally very odd. Um, the fact that eight we don't sections. get... It's actually eight sections. We don't get to the crime, which is the potential crime. We don't get to that until quite a number of pages in. Mm-hmm. The explanation, the missus was right all along. None of the things were accidents. A swimming accident was a father telling the kid to swim out too far. Mm-hmm. The tomain poisoning was, guess what? Atropine. Atropine, we... Yet again. We saw it in uh, the thumb mark of St. Peter just last week. Yep. And we um, saw it in the chocolate box, right? Indeed. And he did cut the trellis. Too and bad he it didn't have any pilocarpine. Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> Pilofish. Um, Pilofish. <laughs> he killed his brother and was going to kill his son with the hypodermic needle containing formic acid. Mm-hmm. And he pushed Vincent from the train, right? Let's rack it up. He first killed Vincent, who was his nephew, right? He killed his nephew, Correct. Vincent, who was the next heir, by pushing him off the train. Then he killed his brother. Well, one of them was already sickly. So the, the one that right. was already the invalid, maybe... I think he just died. Yeah, because well, he was although, sickly, g- that's right. Given, given how crazy this guy is, I don't know that you should just think that. But. That's true. That was Ronald. That was not child Ronald, but brother Ronald. That was the sickly one. Then the estate went to brother John, who also had a son at Eton. The son at Eton, poor boy, died in a shooting Fish. accident, which was not a shooting accident. And then... murder. John dies from a, hmm, a wasp sting. Sound familiar? And then that's... So the, the bee sting was a cover for just being able to jab a hypodermic needle in the same spot and say, oh, oops, it was from the bee sting. He just had a delayed reaction. It's a little unclear what order. This is a chicken or the egg argument, but I guess he really wanted the estate. <laughs> that was his actual primary motivation. Right. But then also he was insane, and also he really did believe in the curse. Right, so he just became obsessed with the idea that his oldest son just could not inherit. Right, so even though he killed everyone in order to get the estate, 
I don't know. You could maybe argue that it's guilt of some kind. I don't know. But he's dying, and so while... He doesn't want his oldest son to inherit because it would ruin everything. Too bad he didn't only have daughters. The whole thing would have been solved if he just had daughters. Well, no, but here's the kicker. The kicker to the whole story is one Mm -hmm. of those, like, twist Christy last lines. Mm -hmm. Because we find out that Mrs. Lemazurier, she ends up marrying Gardner. The too good looking secretary. The pretty boy. She marries the pretty boy secretary, who again we've mentioned his auburn curls, and we should have mentioned, by the way, that, that little Ronald has red Ronald hair. Ronald also has auburn hair, and that information is laid in like a couple of lines after mention of the secretary's auburn curls. And yeah, I'd like to just read the last couple of sentences in the story. So Hastings says, "Another illusion gone. You have disposed very successfully of the curse of the Lumisieres." I wonder, said Poirot very thoughtfully, I wonder very much indeed. What do you mean? Mon ami, I will answer you with one significant word. Red. Blood? I queried, dropping my voice to an awe-stricken whisper. Always you have the imagination melodramatic, Hastings. I refer to something much more prosaic. The color of little Ronald Lemazurier's hair. The end. He's the mailman's son. Yeah, and the irony is that, of course, the entire source of the curse was the mistaken notion of the mailman's son being the chosen heir. Thirteen, whatever. Right, (laughs) and so that's what started the original curse, and what then I guess you could argue ended it is the fact that the firstborn son was not, in fact, the Le Missouri son at all. Right, well, I mean, the curse really continues because now the Le Miserier inheritance will go on to Ronald's children, and he is not a Le Miserier, so the eldest boy well, within the no, family will no, never well, he's not, get he's it. Not a, well, no, he's not a Le Miserier Oh, yeah. The curse does continue. The curse oh, continues forever. Right, right. So Christie's kind of able to have her cake and eat it, too. It's like the curse is kind of real. It's born out. For a really, really weird and not particularly good story, I have to say it's a really, really satisfying kicker. It is a satisfying kicker because she also, Sadie, marries the good-looking secretary. So good on her. Enjoy that pretty face, Sadie. Yeah, who I guess apparently she'd been having a thing with for, like, what, nine years? (laughs) Yeah, like basically forever. (laughs) Whatever. She was married to an insane child-killing man. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy it worked out for for Sadie. Good for her. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her American can-do spirit. I know. (laughs) Oh, by the way, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't she also, am I making this up? Wasn't she an actress? Who, Sadie? If she was, that's great, because that that would be a time when being an actor actually is not important. I would like that. I have to check now. Oh, yes, yes. She says, I was just a musical comedy actress in a small part. When Hugo met me, and I thought his family curse was just too lovely for words. So, props to Agatha Christie for seeing the information about an actor (laughs) and having that not be germane to solving the mystery. I appreciate that. I suppose it's germane to the twist in that you know that she's duplicitous. Yeah, but she's not. She's not murderously duplicitous. The only other thing that I thought was funny is that you could argue, would this ridiculous family curse and just the insanity be as extreme in a good, upstanding Anglican family? 
in the UK? Is there a little bit of Roman Catholic prejudice going on here? Not that we're ranking this one or anything, but I, I might give that a ding. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, well... No, I don't think so. It's gothic, right? We talked about the gothic novel, and I think there's this sense that a lot of the excesses of the gothic genre are enacted by Roman Catholics, because there's this idea that the Roman Catholic religion is excessive, right? And it's Baroque, and it's a little unhinged from the Protestant perspective. You can make that argument. Although, I mean, Church of England took a large number of cues from the Roman Catholic Church. So I they don't did. Think the, the, high, the high Anglicans yeah. did. But half of Anthony Trollope's novels are about the wars of culture between high and low Anglicans. Right, of course. So of course. It's a small point. I just thought it was interesting that they were clearly a Roman Catholic family. Yeah, I think the spoof on the gothic novel is the it's even bigger issue there. Which I mean, yes, you're right. It does all of those do have something to do with religion ultimately, but less so here. I mean, it feels sure, sure. It's extremely subtextual, and it might even be unconsciously done. It's certainly not like a message that's meant to be gleaned from the story. I just think there might be an L. I think there might be a, a subconscious element of it in there, if one were to dig. <laughs> the Lemusurier Inheritance, the unsung, uh, or at least unadapted, short story of Poirot for purposes of the ITV series. And I kind of get it. I kind of get why they at least were not clamoring to adapt this one. I think they they could have done it, though. Yeah, they definitely could have done it. It could have been fun. Oh, yeah. It could have been really fun. It's actually not... I thought, knowing that it had not been... Adapted. I thought it must have been terrible. Right, like and it just made no sense, and it was just would have had to be a complete page one rewrite sort of a thing. But no, but actually, you could almost just kind of go with the plot that's there. Yeah, you kind of could. I mean, we saw them do a page one rewrite on the Lost Will, remember, which yes. did sort of require such reinvention to make it into a fifty-minute episode. But I think it's just more that if this had been one of the ones that they chose in the early seasons when they were doing the fifty-minute episodes, they could have been perfectly capable of doing it. By the time they were committed to doing everything, they were doing those feature-length episodes, and, and certainly at that point, you can't do a two-hour long episode with this craziness. No, but, um, no, and also, by the time they were trying to wrap it up, you also lost Hastings. Yeah, and you need... I mean, this is one that that is screaming out for... God, can you imagine Miss Lemon if, if Pauline Moran were in this episode? Oh, it would have been, well, yes. Oh, it would be so fun. With, the whole, with all the spiritual part of it. Oh, it and you talking, she could have been talking about like other curses that she had heard of, mm-hmm. you know, like other families she knew that like something, they could have pulled out their who's who's. Uh, like That was one of my favorite details on the show is like checking the registries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah. Well. I mean, yeah, it's definitely one that, like, if you look at some of them that they did adapt and some of them we've even watched so far that are, I know it's sacrilegious to say, but are not maybe very good. Mm -hmm. This could have been a really enjoyable one. It could have been charming. Alas, it was not to be. But we are done now speaking about the Le Miserier inheritance. And we would love for you to join us in our next episode when we are tackling our next novel. 
What about Bob? <laughs> that novel is What About Bob? Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? We need to talk about Kevin, a.k.a. Why Didn't They Ask Evans? I will be honest with you. I did not realize that Agatha Christie wrote breezy thrillers past the 1920s. I was a little alarmed to learn that there was yet another breezy thriller, and I think there are a couple more, actually, in our future. But I have also heard good things about this one. I assume I've read it before, but I have no recollection of reading it, and I, I'm very and excited to, make, to dive in. And to make in. things even more exciting, my copy of it, my uh, vintage 1970s copy, is actually called The Boomerang Clue. Ooh, that, that's the American title? Yes. Probably a better title. Well, easier to remember. <laughs> easier to remember in this day and age after so many question-marked titles. Indeed. Um, Indeed. So join us for that. And in the meantime, please do contact us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or look us up on Twitter at allaboutthedame or look up Catherine at Brobcat. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And you can also find us on Instagram at All About Agatha. And please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes or, as I believe it has been newly christened, Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out in our placement there. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.